Welcome to Smith Weekly Discussions, an occasional program for our readers and listeners of Smith Weekly Research. Please note this program is a private discussion and everything contained herein is for entertainment and educational purposes only. With that, we hope you're in a comfortable position along with your favorite beverage to enjoy the discussion. We remind our audience to examine our show notes attached to each of our shows to better understand how our program functions. Before we get into our discussion, we want to say thanks for questions coming from our audience of Smith Weekly, including Brent S. and Deep P. Marvin Barron is our guest today. Marvin is co-founder of Fine Print Data, a new research service that is focused on congressional investing and tracking how politicians invest. You can learn more about Fine Print Data via their website, fineprintdata.com. Mr. Barron, thanks for coming on and welcome to the show. Yeah, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Well, Marvin, thanks for joining us. Uh, how about to start off a bit on your background and why co-founder Joe Florence and yourself started Fine Print? Sure. Um, so I came out of college uh, and got to work immediately in, in the wealth management, investment management space at, at a company here in Philadelphia. And in that process, uh, just sort of organically became aware of uh, some research that came out in the early 2000s uh, suggesting that members of Congress uh, were, were systematically able to beat the stock market. And, and this research led to uh, kind of a lot of media coverage and some legislative changes, uh, including the passage of a pretty major piece of legislation called the Stock Act, uh, trying, trying to curtail that. And it kind of flagged this away in my head as, well, well that's interesting. What, what's going on there? Because it, it matches up, I think, with a lot of intuitions people were having about how the system, the system functions. Now, at the same time, uh, my friend Joe, uh, who I'd known since college, he was approaching the problem from the other side as an academic. Uh, he was studying political science at the University of Chicago and at Cornell and then uh, doing a fellowship at Harvard. Um, and so he was more aware of the data from uh, how these studies were being published uh, and, and was pretty aware that the data sets themselves uh, were very difficult to put together and to, to analyze and parse. And, you know, we were talking and said, wouldn't it be great to work on this and just try and get the data compiled in such a way so that all the people who might be interested in this question of how are the politicians investing and are they outperforming, are they underperforming, what side of the table are they sitting on? I mean, these might be individual investors, these might be offices like my previous office, they might be media, uh, media members or academic researchers. Um, should they be able to access this data in a way that's more transparent and more searchable uh, than the sort of handwritten and faxed forms that many of the offices submit? Our core idea was there's a big enough audience for that data that if we can just put it together, uh, somebody's going to be interested in looking at it. And so that's why we put Fine Print together. Speak to that for just a moment as far as the performance. I know you guys are still working on stuff, but is there a trend on performance? Uh, how have they, the politicians, have they been outperforming? What does their performance look like going back? So there are four studies that look at this that have pretty conflicting results. And I'm, I'm hesitant to say anything conclusive until we can uh, get the data ourselves and replicate these studies. Uh, three of the studies point to uh, looking at three different time periods, let's call it anomalous performance. 
the strongest of which was a 2004 study which looked at uh, the House of Representatives over, over a pretty significant period um, and found strong outperformance. And then again, uh, the same researchers found strong outperformance by the Senate. Um, more recently, and there was a study that came out just a couple weeks ago, uh, which was looking specifically at the recent surge and did not find outperformance, but that was relative to other stocks. And it was ignoring the question I think a lot of people were concerned about were, were members of the Senate able to successfully time the market and get out of stocks entirely before getting back in? So it's, it's a bit of a multifaceted question because not all members of Congress are active traders. It's a bit of a multifaceted question because we have to say, are we concerned about performance relative to the stock market or are we using our benchmark uh, cash or how do we consider bond investors? There are a significant number of those. What we can say pretty uh, directly is that members of Congress don't invest like the general public, right? So one, a few things jump out pretty immediately in the data, like even though uh, I think Pfizer is about the fifth most commonly held stock by members of Congress. It is not the fifth largest company. It's about the 20th largest company in the S&P 500. Same thing with Bank of America. So I think what we're concerned about is less this question of are members of Congress able to time their investments, but are they able to systematically invest in companies over which they have dominion and power? And what's the influence over longer periods of time uh, of that relationship. And I think that's what we're gonna look at once we uh, have the tools in place in the next couple months. Can you tell us a little bit about your, just the high level process? Um, sure. About how you guys are going to do your research or are doing your research now. And can you share with the audience maybe just a couple hints of the indicators and the types of filings that you're watching? Absolutely. So when we look at members of Congress, and Let's just start by saying that's where we're directing our initial attention because that's received a lot of the coverage uh, so far, but our, our longer term goal is to expand to the other branches of government and to start to look at some of the states which have received almost um, kind of no coverage at all um, and which have you know, very strong jurisdictional powers over, over a variety of industries. But when we look at just members of Congress, there are two forms that they're required to file. One is an annual disclosure. And that's essentially a balance sheet where the member will list all of their assets and their different income sources. And they'll list those with, with a pretty large box, you know, one to $15,000, $15,000 to $50,000. So you don't get a real perfect picture of what the asset is, but at least you have a line item there. And then from that, on an ongoing basis, with a, oh, about a 30-day lag, members are required to list any trades that they make. So the big thing that we're going to do as a first-order research is chain these two documents together so that we can take the data which is lagging by 18 months and shorten that window to 30 days because we can see the transactions in the same way that there's an con inherent connection between the balance sheet and the cash flow statement. And from those two, you should be able to derive the income statement. We want to be able to do the same thing to update what's really a pretty time lagged balance sheet 
for these members by using their ongoing disclosures. The other thing that we want to be able to do is we want to chain in and backfill some of these documents using market data. So an example would be Tesla. If we have members that own Tesla, and Tesla has gone up by a significant amount of time over the last three, a significant amount over the last three years, then we can retroactively look back at their initial position and say, well, we know it wasn't a $15,000 position because otherwise they would have had to move up the checkbox the next year into the next category. So we can narrow down that initial position, backfill the data, and have a better fundamental idea of what the allocation of Congress is across all of their holdings. So we're building those statistical models, and I think that's going to be just an order of magnitude more sophisticated than what anybody else has been able to do. Once we have that in place, I think we're going to be able to add just a large number of other public servants into this data and have an idea of where, as a whole, um, the administrators and legislators are investing. Well, let's talk a little bit about that for a moment. Can you just talk just for a moment about your guys' plans to move into the states? I think that that's interesting. So right now you guys are going to be looking at uh, House Representatives, uh, Senate, mm -hmm. high-level federal politicians, and then also I think you made a good point looking at some of the state governors and some of those politicians at the highest levels of the state also makes sense. Like you said, a number of these states have significant economies and they control potentially a lot of how companies will perform and act. Can you just speak to that and, and what you guys are looking at on the state level? Sure. Uh, well, one reason to do that is simply, you know, some of the states are very large. I mean, California would be what the sixth or seventh largest economy in the globe uh, if we considered it independently. And the states have differing uh, requirements for disclosures. So one of the very robust findings uh, from development economics and political economics is that more transparent governments, better run governments, governments where there's more accountability, uh, have different spending priorities than ones that don't. So ones with less accountability tend to uh, have spending priorities that are higher towards capital intensive projects. So just being able to sort the states by the level of accountability and connection between the people passing and making the regulations, um, and then the breakdown of spending by that state, we, we think there's going to be value there in terms of, of predictability and moving forward. Um, so I think that's what we're looking at. Obviously, there are industries which we're going to narrow in on uh, where, where state legislation is, is dominant. Uh, insurance, I think, being the, being the cleanest example there. Also in real estate development, uh, where, where state regulations and codes tend to dominate the landscape. As we look at international comparisons, I think one of the more interesting things is the degree to which different countries have taken very different lines in how they want their politicians to be uh, involved in the economy. So in most of the Asian countries, the idea that you could profit from your stocks and at the same time be a public servant, uh, that's not really okay in Singapore, right? Um, the U.S. has said that we should treat our legislators more like private citizens, and, and there's an argument to be made there as well in the sense that it's great if your um, holdings improve at the same time that uh, your constituents' lives improve. What we're really concerned about, however, are the edge cases 
where legislators are invested in places that uh, the success doesn't line up with the success of their uh, area or their constituency, if they're shorting the market, if they're investing in competitors, local employers, things like that. Uh, we think there's a, a lot to be said for just having that knowledge out there. Speak to your guys' view on this particular strategy and data set that you guys sure. are working on. Do you see that this is really something that would be a supplemental for the investor? Um, say you have a, a portfolio of stocks and bonds and different strategies. Would you say watching what Congress is doing is a supplemental strategy to an overall portfolio? Or do you guys see that this is really could be a dedicated portfolio? What's your thoughts just from an investor perspective on how they might apply the data? From a peer investor perspective, one of the things that I noticed, it's very difficult for individual investors to come away with a sense of confidence even if they're in their investments, even if they've done the analytics. And a lot of that happens from kind of the noise that's happening in the larger picture of the news. What I would say is we're about to enter into the largest restructuring of the economy by the government in the, in the post-war period. And so just knowing that your politicians are sitting on the same side of the table as you, we think is valuable. So the big shifts that we've seen in quarter one are shifts into the energy sector, into the pharmaceutical sector, uh, and within those sectors, we've seen shifts strongly towards wind, a little bit away from some of the more traditional energy sources. Right? Within the pharmaceutical sector, we've seen shifts into some of the smaller players within pharmaceuticals, away from uh, the majors there. So just having that awareness to reinforce the investment decision, I think, can be helpful. There's a second question, and we've entered into some very preliminary discussions with a couple of investment firms about, is it useful to create a tracker fund that just replicates the investments of Congress over time um, as, in some ways, a passive investment strategy? And I can certainly see uh, the role that could play as a supplemental investment strategy in addition to an analytics-driven strategy. Well, let's move on here. Let's talk about other subjects. So a few weeks ago, I believe it was Senator Richard Burr stepped aside mm -hmm. at the Intelligence Committee uh, as chairman there, and the fine folks over at the FBI are checking into his sales of stock during the initial COVID ramp-up. Right. Can you give us some details on this? What are your thoughts about the rules that are in place that exist that we've talked about uh, briefly that you touched on earlier? Uh, related to politician purchases and sales of investments, and are the rules really rigged in the politician's favor? You know, so there's not a lot of clarity here, and the Burr case, I think, is a fascinating example uh, because the Stock Act uh, in, uh, tried to reiterate the concept that members of Congress uh, can be prosecuted for insider trading. That's not okay for them. It's not okay for their staff. It's not okay for their immediate family members, right? However, subsequent advice from Congress came back and said, it's not okay to do it, but because of the separation of powers, it's also not okay for the executive branch to, to investigate independently the legislative branch. So it's not entirely clear why uh, the executive branch was given the green light to seize Burr's cell phone records, to seize his computer records. In this case, 
but it doesn't seem like a similar investigation has been done for Senator Loeffler in Georgia, uh, who seems to have moved uh, a pretty sizable amount of stock herself uh, after the same briefing that Burr received. So it seems like there's some amount of politics being played behind the scenes that people don't really know about. The bigger question is, why is it possible for members to make these trades in advance of the general public? And in Burr's case in particular, uh, he was telling his larger donors one thing, and, and then speaking to the public was saying, no, this isn't a problem, this isn't a worry at all. So he was telling his donors, he was telling possibly his brother-in-law, he was making changes to his own portfolio um, that would indicate that he was really quite worried about the coronavirus, and then some of his public statements were moving in the other direction. And we have a lot of tools for dealing with that conflict of interest in the private sector, pre-clearance of trades, um, putting in, freezing out trading windows uh, after receiving of sensitive information. None of those tools have been put into place. And I think one of the things that we can do through this is by shining a light on the activity, uh, create more pressure to get more transparency there, just so the system functions uh, better overall. And Marvin, you know, we don't see much punishment for politicians that act out of their own self-serving interest. After all, they're supposed to represent and serve the taxpayers, not themselves. Absolutely. Do you see that they are held, really held to a lower standard than everyone else? And is there a degree of above the law going on here? I think there might be very much a, a degree of above the law. And the big question comes down to, is it possible for the people who follow this to hold their local politicians to account? Because the ultimate accountability comes from the voter. And so the big thing with, uh, that made a lot of these disclosures hard to cover is the fact that in 2020, uh, Burr's statements were still essentially faxed in, right? Uh, about 20% of the House of Representative statements and a lot of our work are they're handwritten. And so if you're you know, a local reporter on the local beat, if you're an opposition uh, political player, just processing this information and being able to make a statement that something's not right here so that the voters can make an informed choice, uh, that raises the difficulty bar on, I think, just that level of engaged dialogue. So to the degree we can make things more transparent, uh, that helps a lot. Right? At the same time, I think it's important for corporations to understand where the investors who regulate them, uh, where the regulators who cover them are invested. And I think it's important if somebody, for people to know, hey, I've got to go to a committee hearing and the people who are gonna be interrogating me at the committee hearing are strongly invested in my competitors. So that level of transparency, I think, is just part and parcel to a well-functioning democracy. And so that's something we're trying to provide. I agree, and interesting set of circumstances. Can you talk a little more about the rules that they have to follow? I know earlier you, you mentioned the 30 days. Sure. Is this, so they give notice within 30 days after they Correct. do a transaction. So let's say they buy a stock on April 1st, they would mm -hmm. you know, report on May 1st potentially or something like that. And then if they sell something, basically they can report, they have to report 30 days within 30 days after they sell. Is that correct? So that's correct. So they have to report within 30 days of the transaction. And then that gets released to the public with a little bit of a lag there as well. So and I think what's more important is because of this lag, I don't think we're going to be able to implement anything like uh, a real-time trading strategy. 
but I do think we can build a sentiment analysis that covers larger trend moves. So one of the things that was interesting is what we saw and, and could have covered if we were up and running at that time period, a pretty dramatic increase in trading volume for both the House and the Senate in quarter one. And this was happening before coronavirus uh, had even been recognized more broadly. So there was an indicator that something was going on. We saw a 32% increase in Senate trading activity. We saw about an 80% increase in House activity compared with quarter one last year. And those numbers typically remain fairly stable. So that jump should have been a, an alert that something's going on and we can, we can peer a little deeper. I think our big goal here is to be able to say, can we be the canary in the coal mine? Can we pay attention to the longer term trends? Because in general, legislators tend to be fairly risk averse. They tend to have fairly low turnover strategies. And so when we see individual legislators who might have done very little trading for a long period of time, suddenly do 15 trades in a month, even if we're getting that data 30 days later, that's significant. Right? If we see legislators who have traditionally not traded individual stocks, and we see all the members of the Energy Committee start trading individual stocks when they've mostly been buy and hold mutual fund buyers, there's information in that behavioral change separate from information about what's going on with any of the individual stocks. And we think that trend analysis is probably going to have more wisdom to it over time. Okay. And so there is obviously hearings and, and discussions within government mm -hmm. about COVID. Let's use that in the, as a most recent example. Sure. Um, so for a senator who goes to a hearing and, and hears something or talks to someone uh, within government, there's some premeditation of what the response is going to be and what the plans are going to be given they don't have to disclose anything until 30 days after a transaction. So let's say they went in and sold XYZ US oil stock. What's the investigation other than just a simple allegation that they had insider information? Is that the only allegation that you can have? Because they don't have to, they don't have any requirement to say anything until after 30 days. What's the premise of the investigation and does it have any teeth? Yeah, it really doesn't. And insider trading is a very difficult thing to prove because it's a very in some ways, hyper narrow definition. So insider trading is really tied to having a specific piece of actionable information about a specific company. And I think Burr's defense has been, I was acting because of general news reports that I was absorbing, not because of this specific hearing. And so being able to prove that somebody made the decision in their mind because of a hearing as opposed to a panic they got in the middle of the night bubbling up from their subconscious, that's a pretty high bar to cross. I think that's why ultimate accountability has to come from the members of the voting public who are also investors who realize that this entire system corrupts the clarity of the investment decision. Interesting. And what's the limitation on the reporting vehicles? So let's mm -hmm. say you're a senator and you have maybe an offshore trust that uh, is actually owned by others. What's the extension of their filing requirements as far as having other vehicles to make their investment decisions, even though they may not be the beneficial owner? You know, I think the ideal is that members would put their assets into a blind trust, some sort of subsidiary vehicle. And of course, as we know, the uh, 
there are things that can be legally blind trusts and in reality uh, don't tend to function that way. What we do tend to see is just the transparency requirements of having to disclose cause people to clean up their act usually in the year before, uh, before they run. So we do think that the, even the existing disclosures as weak as they are because of the political ramifications cause people to shift into more vanilla investments. That's why it becomes so notable for the members who have not done so, right? So I, in terms of the statutory requirements, there are ways to evade uh, the disclosure requirements uh, as, as they currently stand. Uh, but we do see in general, because there's a mellowing of people's investments, those structures aren't in existence if somebody wants to make a move at a moment in time. So they make the move anyway. Marvin, talk a little bit more about maybe you guys have been looking at data. Is there anything that stands out in your mind most recently, perhaps, that was a transaction that you guys want to point out that, you know, a senator or a politician made an investment and obviously it, it worked out in their favor? Maybe maybe we can just avoid the COVID uh, example, but is there any other just, you know, standard general market condition type of move by a politician that has resulted in an interesting trend. Is there anything you can point out specifically? Sure. Uh, you know, I, I think it's interesting to contrast uh, a couple different cases because it, it shows how you have to look at every everybody on a case-by-case -case basis. So uh, one example that I, I would put in the, there's not much to see here uh, once you dig in, is uh, a representative out of Detroit, uh, Brenda Lawrence, who about half of her net worth is in Ford Motor Company. Now, normally we would put this as a big red flag, you know, a highly concentrated investment in a single stock uh, tends to be, to fall outside of the, the best practices for individual investors. And then when we dig in, we find out that, you know, that's where her husband worked and he had received stock there for a period of time and has a pension there. And so there, there's a story there that makes sense, has been a long time investor with just Ford, uh, we, we don't really need to dig a lot deeper. Uh, other cases would be active investors. Uh, there's a representative out of Long Beach, Lowenthal, who began shorting the S&P 500 in 2019. Really the only case we're seeing of anybody taking an active position against uh, improvement in the stock market and, and then moved pretty aggressively in that direction, taking short positions of uh, between 5 and 15% of his net worth. Again, that's just something that's sort of fundamentally different than we see uh, for most investors. And, and I think it's useful to know if somebody who's steering the ship is actively betting for the ship to sink. Similarly, we saw a representative from the Green Bay area who had not been a very active investor uh, in January, so before COVID had even happened, suddenly liquidate about half to, between half and 100% of his entire stock portfolio and just go to cash somebody who had not been an active investor, suddenly get dramatically more conservative. And so when we sum all of those up, what we saw is across Congress, across the Senate and across the House, even before COVID-19 happened, an increase in trading volume um, that we could have flagged in February, a move towards more, cons more conservative investments, uh, there was a member from Florida who traditionally rolls over a bond portfolio, a municipal bond portfolio of several million dollars, who just didn't roll the portfolio over. 
So we saw a lot of trades that were making everybody more defensive, more conservative, um, and the increase in volume says that suddenly members who had not been active investors were suddenly becoming active and paying attention to their investments in a new way. And so having that signal and being able to broadcast it going forward, I, we think is gonna have some value. The Ford uh, example, when, when you lay out those couple examples, I think the thing that sticks out in my mind is, is obviously the, the person who went short the S&P 500, that's obviously a, a notable action. The Ford example, I mean, you know, I, I would be short Ford, <laughs> not long. But uh, interesting, the one where you said the person liquidated half to 100% went to cash and the other person that actively went short on the S&P. I mean, that's more of a convictive move than someone who's just holding Ford, uh, which obviously you, you guys would focus more on the other two rather than the Ford example. Exactly. And then we would pull the Ford example kind of out of our, out of our broader signaling. But note that the, the, the person who had moved to cash the portion who had begun shorting the S&P 500, there's nothing illegal about those movements. But there's a lot of information in the idea that somebody who's an informed person in a position of leadership, who yeah. by default has power, is becoming more conservative. Yes. And we know that COVID was, the, the traces of COVID started, I, I don't have my information 100% correct probably here, but in China, we started hearing about COVID issues in China, I think it was in December, if my memory serves me correctly. It certainly looks like there was probably some folks knew some things ahead of time in the month of January that people were taking precautions. That's um, correct. And if people were taking precautions with their personal investments, but with their public statements and their public platform, we're telling everybody else not to worry, that's problematic. And that's exactly what appeared to happen. I don't know if you guys have looked at this, but another interesting case is September 2001, airline stocks, et cetera. Have you guys looked at anything there? And would you certainly say that there was potentially information up front in that event? Uh, we haven't put any of the disclosures from that time period into our database, so it would be uh, very premature for me to say anything about that time period. But it's certainly something that we want to give access to people who want to look at things like that, too. Right? We want to make that just a very easy, searchable, queryable event. In the same way that we saw a lot of movement after COVID and after some of these hearings started to happen where p other members went to cash, some people moved away from the airlines, some people moved away from the cruise industry, things like that. I, I think there's a lot of people who want to ask about very specific time periods. These disclosures are all out there. The problem is that they're not searchable, they're not queryable, they're not findable, uh, unless you want to get a lot of paper cuts. <laughs> exactly. Well, talk a little bit more about that side of it. So for mm -hmm. you guys, you guys are going to be putting together the data putting yeah. together the data you guys will have those those systems set up will there be anything as far as you guys looking at specific trends and coming out and making recommendations to your audience uh to your different members um or are you guys just presenting the data in in a very usable format for your members to make their own decisions how, how are you guys looking at that I think the first thing that we're going to do is, is let's get the data organized. And then the second thing we're going to do is we're going to say, what can we extract from this data in terms of an ongoing signal? And, and the, the most primitive form of that ongoing signal is simply an asset allocation test of 
if we look at the asset classes as cash, real estate, stocks, and bonds, what trends do we see against the baseline on, on a rolling monthly basis? You know, we're, we're downloading new disclosures every day, and so we can compare those disclosures to past members' activity and see if there are sort of spikes and send out alerts. So being able to do that on an asset allocation basis, uh, that's our first, first goal. And I think we would send that information out in terms of a real-time flag to our subscribers and perhaps a couple days delay to, to a more general audience. The second thing we want to overlay on that is sector analysis. So uh, overlay the GIC sectors uh, of industrial organization and, and be able to do the same thing. Is Congress over-allocated to certain companies, certain industries relative to the S&P 500? Because the S&P 500 being, uh, being market cap weighted is also representative of the, of the holdings of the general public. So even there, anecdotally, like I mentioned earlier, we're starting to notice some ways in which Congress invests that, that are fundamentally different than the general public allocation. Now, the example I used earlier was Pfizer, Pfizer being a top five holding among Congress, but being around 20, 22nd in, in the S&P 500 ratings. Walt Disney also, top five holding among Congress, around 20th in the S&P 500. Bank of America, same thing. So where are those real breaks between how the investing public has allocated their assets and how members have invested theirs, uh, just so people can stay informed? So I think those are the next steps in terms of research. Once we're able to do that in a pretty consistent, automatic way, then we'll start expanding our coverage. And our coverage is going to first expand to other branches of the federal level, um, and then we'll go deeper into the federal level and start looking at how aids uh, to these members who draft a lot of the legislation uh, invest. Then we'll start to expand to the states. Yes, I, and I think that's important. I think that there's a lot of other treasures to be found as you guys expand this. And Marvin, can you just tell me, because I don't know, maybe you can save me the time. Sure. Where can people go to actually get these disclosures? Sure. Uh, you can go to the Office of Government Ethics for the House. And you can search for your individual member and they will bring up all the PDFs. Those PDFs, about 80% of them will be in kind of a, a computer readable format. And about 20% of them will be either faxed or handwritten. Uh, the Senate has its own office for these disclosures. And you can go and search for your senator. And all these disclosures go back nine years. Right? Um, and, and the Senates are a little more automatic. Uh, and they come out in a, in a more machine-readable format. So there are a few websites that are automatically transmitting that data as it comes out in real time. So those are the two resources. Another resource that we recommend is the organization Open Secrets has, has a historical trove of these forms just in the raw form data itself. So if people want to do this work and compile it themselves, you know, th this is information that's out there. Um, what we found is that actually digging into the information is pretty difficult. So a lot of people don't want to do it themselves. Every office tends to list their holdings in a different way. And even if they're stable over time, it's difficult to make cross comparisons. 
No, it looks like it's intentionally set up quite confusing, overwhelming, I suspect. And if you want to get into it, thousands and thousands of hours, I suspect, would be what you're in for. And so agencies, uh, you know, if say you want to look up the Department of Energy or the EPA, for example, or you want to drill down to a specific state, my suspicion is these are all separate areas, separate websites, separate disclosures. Absolutely. And as we want to get into, you know, issues of kind of this second tier in some ways where uh, the real administrative power might lie, some of these requests you have to make in person in offices in Washington, D.C., and then sort of wait around in the office and, and get a CD full of PDFs or, or something like that. So getting having there just be a single portal to access all this, I think that's the value we're going to provide on, on a subscription basis for organizations that are interested in that. Let's move into that. Let's talk about the various components that you guys are going to offer. Can you speak to just generally the the different offerings that you guys are preparing and then how people can sign up and the expected cost for each of the services? Sure. I mean, so the, the first tier service, I think, is aiming towards the individual investor, uh, the small investment office who wants to be able to integrate these insights into their larger investment research process. And that's going to be a newsletter that's going to cost a few hundred dollars a year. I think the higher tier institutional level access, which will be the larger queryable database, which will be several thousand dollars a year subscription, we're going to be targeting uh, research libraries at the major uh, research universities, uh, media organizations, some of the larger political research and accountability watchdog organizations. Uh, and then we'll be able to have kind of real-time trend tracking analysis going on there as well. So when we download the data every day, uh, we can apply and, and see how that looks with, you know, as of one year ago. I think, as you know, a lot of investment cycles are, or trends are very annual in terms of their cyclicality because of tax laws and, and things like that. So we want to be able to look back one year, two years, three years, four years to account for the seasonality. Very well. And you would probably, that last one, that would be fitting for institutions and, and bigger hedge funds, et cetera, I'm assuming. Absolutely. Okay. And so let's say you have a superstar senator, XYZ senator, a dirty active investor. If people identify a real superstar and they just want to pull information on what he or she is doing, is that also something where people can just come in and pull off individual people that they like to follow? Yeah, so we would want, we would set alerts um, in our system to let you know that, hey, there's an update regarding this one superstar senator that you want to follow, um, or if you just want to follow kind of your, your local person and, and see what they're up to. So being able to follow one person as opposed to, right now, you have to go and you have to query um, the government site and see if there have been any changes. There's no specific alert that something new has been filed. They don't batch the new filings together. Um, and, and I think that the degree to which the process is difficult, there are times where it feels like it, this is not a designed process. This has been made intentionally difficult. That's in some ways one of our biggest signals that there's something useful in this data. Right. If they weren't trying to hide anything, that they wouldn't make it so hard to look at it. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, let's talk about your guys' long-term strategy at Fine Print. Uh, Marvin, sure. can, can you just speak to what your guys' goals are with the business? And uh, I'm assuming you and Joe are going to hang around for a while. Yeah. Uh, you know, 
it really started out as this this sense that there's something happening about the intersection of these systems with how we organize our lives. We have this this idea that we organize around capitalism. We have this idea that we organize around democracy. And I think more recently what's crept into the discussion is, man, maybe those systems aren't playing together uh, as beautifully and as wonderfully as they have in the past. So that was kind of the animating energy uh, that, that told me and Joe, well, let, let's go into this area. I think the first thing we want to do is we want to get a data product up and running. Uh, Part of this is let's just see if we can do it. Uh, there's an editor at a, at a media organization we've been talking to who says, what we're doing is the holy grail of, of political accountability data sets. And, and people have tried to do this before, but uh, the data problems are pretty intense. So if we can create that, the next question is, can we get it to break even? And can we get it to break even through a newsletter project, product, um, product and through a data product for some of these larger institutional clients. If we can do that, the question is then on an operational basis, what can we do with this data on a day-to-day -day basis? And we've entered into some preliminary discussions with some investment companies in terms of creating possibly a tracker fund or kind of a hedge fund mirror that would take and amplify some of these bets the politicians are making on the assumption that there's information there. So that's certainly a possibility. Um, there might be funds that just want to license our data um, real time so that they can do that on their own. I, in general, I'd be really happy if we can expand this coverage to cover a lot of different countries, a lot of different states, and a lot of different areas where people who have political power are also investing as private citizens. So that we can come up with kind of a unified sentiment index of what are the people with power doing with their own money? It's always fascinated me that the most followed and watched sentiment index in the US is a consumer sentiment index, the Consumer Confident Index published by Michigan. And what I'm really interested in is not what are consumers doing and are they buying the newest electronic gadget or you know, how do they feel about going and getting shopping for Christmas, but the people who really have power what do they feel about what the economy is doing? What do they feel about the different sectors? And how does that differentiate them from the general public? And how does that differentiate their private decisions versus their public statements? And if we can really get a handle on that in real time, I think there's gonna be something interesting there. Well, yeah, looking forward to fine print information coming up on the Bloomberg terminal and sounds pretty good to me. Can you talk a little bit about uh, why the audience should consider trying fine print services? What would you say to them? I think the thing that makes us fundamentally different is that we're at a ground level getting away from the comparative analysis where you have to make assumptions about interest rates, where you have to make assumptions about risk premium, where you have to make assumptions about cash flow in the future and saying, what are the actual players doing with their money right now? You know, there, there was a long history a long time ago in technical analysis, which has largely been discredited, but they were asking this question of, can we separate out the smart money from the slower money and follow the start smart money? And even though the process of staring at technical charts and, and trying to you know, look for head and shoulders patterns or things like that 
the, the investing research has moved away from it. That initial insight that there's probably a division between types of investors, I think there's some validity to that. I think in the same way that there are a lot of tracker funds that follow inside investors at a corporate level who have to make these disclosures and they just mirror those investments. Uh, I think all we're doing is we're extending that concept into the political domain. And we're doing that at a time where the political domain is taking more and more control over the economic domain. And we see that as an expanding uh, trend going forward. So we want to be on top of it. And we think that uh, our subscribers, our readers, uh, they're going to benefit from being on top of it too. Marvin, I'm going to go back to just something you said a little while ago about capitalism and maybe it not working so well. Is capitalism not working as well because we've perverted what capitalism used to be? This is, this is just a tough question. So I, I think back to the late 90s where there was this idea, there's almost this triumphal idea. Uh, uh, Fukuyama wrote this book, The End of History. And there was this idea that, well, we've beaten communism and we, we've sort of driven back a lot of authoritarian regimes and capitalism and democracy is like peanut butter and chocolate. They go together automatically, perfectly, and create something greater than the sum of their parts. And we don't even have to do much work to have that happen. It's just going to take over. And I think that level of assumption that these systems go together perfectly and nobody needs to pay attention to, uh, to the gearing between them, I think that assumption is coming under pretty heavy, heavy questioning. I am a firm believer in both systems, but I don't think that they work together automatically with nobody watching, nobody paying attention. One of the tenets that makes capitalism work is some degree of equal information access for all the people who are playing the game. And if that assumption gets violated, then the models start to fall apart pretty quickly. One of the things that makes capitalism work is the idea that there's competition among the players. And if that competition isn't fair, if somebody's getting a boost through the legislative process, through the administrative, through the regulatory process over their competitors, then all of the models that allow us to believe that capitalism leads to higher productivity, to higher innovation, to higher standards of growth for everybody, all of those models fall apart. So somebody has to be paying attention to that intersection. And if nobody's doing that, then it's really our own fault if we watch the models fall apart. What's not happening is, I think, a level of pride that the systems work with nobody paying attention to them. I don't have an expectation that my car is going to run forever if I don't change the oil. I don't have an expectation my car is going to run forever if I don't air up the tires. But we've made that assumption about the two biggest, most complicated systems we've created in the history of, of our species. And I, th I think we need to walk that assumption back a little bit. Well said. I'll Certainly get off my soapbox now. <laughs> <laughs> we should certainly get a copy of Adam Smith's Wealth of Nations and make sure that all political leaders uh, fully understand Come back to the reality, in some ways we've gotten stupider. Certainly the central planners and some of the politicians are in positions that they're not qualified for at all, but we'll leave that for another topic. And again, <laughs> Absolutely. The private sector is where the talent lies. That's certainly my opinion, and I think that that's proven itself over and over, but I appreciate the comments on that. And Marvin, can you speak to just how the audience can reach out and learn more about the work you're doing? So we're setting up, we're in a pre-launch formation stage startup. 
so we're setting up uh, on fineprintdata.com, and you can follow our blog. You can follow us on Twitter, at fineprintdata, uh, on all the different social media platforms using that same handle. And at this stage, we're starting to put out preliminary findings, things that are notable as, as just we uh, organize the data, a lot of things start to stand out. So that gives people a handle on what's going on. You can subscribe to our email newsletter where we'll provide summaries of our research. And then when we're ready to launch a product, when we're ready to start raising some capital to expand, uh, we'll use those forums to contact people. Thanks for coming on. Really appreciate you taking the time and walking us through everything at Fine Print. Uh, very interesting work you guys are doing. Good luck, and we look forward to following you guys. Andrew, thanks a lot. It was a great chat.